To focus our thoughts this morning, we are in the Gospel of John, chapter one. It's actually our final lesson for the morning, and we have one verse in front of us, beginning to read at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come this morning reading a symphony of your word, the chorus of verses and prophets and sages across time who have spoken your truth, we hear of the promised Savior who was to come. And Lord, as we read this word, as we continue this morning, we ask that you would write these truths upon our hearts and that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. John Reznikoff deals in the world of historical relics and papers, especially specializing in presidential historical memorabilia. His shop in Westport, Connecticut is full of trinkets and gadgets and papers. He has documents signed by the likes of John Adams hanging from the ceiling. He has the desk of Abraham Lincoln where he once did his studies. He even has the struts off of Barack Obama's first car, a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Of course, all of this is for sale. For a price, you can purchase any of it. John has discovered an industry in which people will spend exorbitant amounts of money to be connected to history and to someone of fame. But John's real talent, his real expertise, lies in the verification of historical documents, whether they're true and authentic or whether they're forgeries. You see, forgery is a big business and there is big money at stake. And so the world literally turns to John, especially when it comes to presidential signatures. Given this, you can imagine John's excitement. In 1992, a client approached him about an archive that he had inherited from his father. There were some 300 documents in the archive, and what was of interest to John Reznikoff was the fact that the man's father was the lawyer for the Kennedy family. These documents were a gold mine. In fact, they offered to alter the way history was written. They retold the story of the election and of the presidency, of so much that was known about the Kennedy family. There was very quickly a book deal signed Massive dollars were exchanged purchasing these documents. A movie contract was in the works. No less than 12 independent historians verified the authenticity along with John Reznikoff. The signature on all the documents was that of John F. Kennedy. But then things came crashing down. Peter Jennings, in his classic journalistic style, and in an ABC interview, brought everything down. You see, John and all of his associates 
had been focused upon the authenticity of the signature. But Jennings had hired an investigative crew to look at the documents. And as they began to look at the documents, there were two things that stood out about them. The first was the letterhead on which many of these were composed. And at the top of the letterhead, there was an address with a zip code. The problem is that the document was dated to 1961 and zip codes were not put into use until 1962. It's a painful moment in the interview. And then also the typeface that was used was not created until the 1970s. And so despite the opinion of the world's leading experts, people vested and who had understood, one of the experts in fact had written the book about JFK's signature. I didn't know there was such a thing. A book about his signature had verified that this thing was real. John was stunned. He was an expert in forgeries. He could spot them and he had been taken fooled. In focusing on the narrow details of the signature, he had missed the broader canvas. He had missed the bigger picture. And when it comes to hearing Jesus, this is often the danger that you and I are in, is that we can become so focused on a narrow amount of details. And sometimes experts would turn us to focus upon those details that we abstract Jesus from his proper context and home. And it's one of the glories of this particular Sunday in which we read the lessons and sing the carols of the Christian church, putting Jesus in his proper home. All the context that he belongs in from the very first pages of scripture to his birth. And so as we come this morning, make no mistake, Because in all the warm sentiment of Christmas that funds the Hallmark Empire, we do meet something unique. We hear claims that alter and direct history if they're verified, if they're true. And so what's critical for us this morning as we read all of this panoply of scripture is to look at Jesus inside of that broader context, on that bigger canvas. And in John's gospel, over the past few weeks, we've seen and discovered that John puts Jesus on the most majestic canvas possible, drawing back into eternity prior to the existence of time, and then landing Jesus in history. And John invites us in this first chapter He invites us, summing up the story, and he invites us to come and see. To come and see Jesus in all of his glory as to who he really is. And so what exactly are we to see? As we look at this story from cover to cover, what is God attempting to impress upon you? What does he want me to hear and understand? It's very simple in verse 14 because we're invited to see God. We're invited to hear that God is manifest. We're invited to see that God has been disclosed. We're invited to see that God has been revealed. 
And there's three things in particular about this disclosure, about this manifestation, about this revelation that come to us in verses 14 and the surrounding words. The first is that we see the purpose of God. It's interesting in verse 14, John writes that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwell is a curious one because we find it at very significant places in the Old Testament. And as John writes his gospel, he's very conscious of what has happened and what God has promised in the past. But in Exodus 40, Moses constructed a tabernacle. It was called a tent of meeting that was placed in the center of Israel's camp as they journeyed through the wilderness. And at the end of the construction, it's recorded for us by Moses that God came and dwelled inside of the tent. And so the idea is that Israel, the mobile people of God on the way to the promised land, were being directed and led and guided and instructed. And their life was constructed literally around the presence of God with them. The tent of meeting was the tabernacle. It was the dwelling of God. The word repeated. God tabernacled with us. And so this was God's great purpose, was to dwell with his people. But it didn't just begin there in Exodus 40, actually. When we look back into Genesis 1 and to the very early pages of the Bible, we find in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 that God came to rest inside of his creation. And this is the idea of God dwelling with his people. Of course, the problem is, is that human sin was introduced. And so in Exodus 40, there is a veil, there is separation. There is something that is approachable and yet somehow unapproachable. And the prophets then record this all the way through scripture where they would report seeing God, but it was always heavily qualified. They would see the hem of his robe. They could not see him face to face or they would die as Moses affirms in Exodus 33. But we see that the purpose of God was to dwell with human beings inside of his good creation. This is what God always designed things to be. And then in Jesus, he's bringing it to a climax and a culmination that God is dwelling with us. Perhaps in a way that no one fully expected. Perhaps in a way that no one fully understood. But the glory, the presence of God was here amongst human beings. This is the first thing we see. The purpose of God to dwell with us. Now, the second thing we see is his glory. John says this very explicitly, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As a student in seminary, I was always curious by this phrase, the glory of God. It became a very popular phrase in the late 90s and early 2000s, and if you wanted to sound sophisticated and educated, you would just attach the glory of God. It was famous amongst the reformers. And then as I sat down to think about it, I didn't really know what the phrase meant. It's kind of abstract. What is the glory of God precisely? What does it mean when he says that we have seen his glory? John, of course, is speaking about his experience as a disciple of Jesus. And then over his gospel, he's going to develop the idea 
of what it means for the glory of God to have been manifested in front of him. Follow with me in this. In John 2, Jesus does his first sign. It was a miracle in which he turned water to wine. And in verse 11, what we hear are these words. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so Jesus's miracles, we are told, are a manifestation of his glory. And then we find the last of these signs in the first part of the book in John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus explains very clearly in John chapter 11 that there was going to be another manifestation of his glory. And he glorifies God before the crowds. And the crowds then turn and believe because they see the man brought forth from the dead. And so what is the glory of God? It is the manifestation of his power. It's the manifestation of his desire and work to bring new creation into the world. All the miracles were signs of what God was doing to unroll and undo what had happened in the curse of the world when we rebelled against him. This is the glory of God at least the first angle that John takes on it. But the second thing that's perhaps a little more mysterious in John's gospel, when he arrives at chapter 12, he turns to the second half, where he deals with the passion narrative of Jesus. And John continues to use the word glory. But this time in chapter 12, it's connected with Jesus's sufferings. In fact, Jesus says, now the time has come for me to be glorified. And then he then says that the Son of Man will be lifted up. And this sounds like language of exaltation. And it sounds like Jesus is going to be supreme and recognized as sovereign. And then this language of glory and being lifted up is applied to his crucifixion. And so John, when he thinks of the glory of God, he's actually drawing us into something very profound and mysterious, that God's glory is found in his suffering. When he puts the interest of someone else above his own, that for John, as he writes his gospel, this is glory manifest among us, God with us in order to be God for us in dying and putting our interest ahead of our own. And this is what he means in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus reveals the true God to us in his sufferings. We learn something of the beauty and the character of God. All of his greatness and his grandeur, not as we would define it or understand it. Completely baffled is the fleshly mind. But to the mind that's been born again, this is glory. The Son of Man crucified on our behalf. A generous display of grace. And we see that glory manifest. The final piece of this, what John invites us to come and see in all of this narrative, is we see his salvation. In verse 16, John says this, he says, for from his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. It's intriguing because John's world was very much like our world. He lived in cosmopolitan city most likely when this gospel was written. He was engaging with people from many different worldviews and faiths and traditions. And particularly popular during John's time was the idea of the Greek mystery religions in which you would experience fullness. It was actually a theological term for the people of his world. And they would seek fullness by going through different cultic rituals and by having certain spiritual practices. And then once those rituals and practices had been fulfilled, fullness would be found. Fullness could be discovered. It was there for you. Your best life awaited you if you would simply pursue it. John does say something very interesting about that in critique. Consider verse 16 again. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He's saying here that fullness is not something out ahead of you. That it's from the fullness of someone who stood in your place that you receive grace upon grace. That illumination and salvation is found in the fullness of someone else. That you don't have it through cultic ritual and you don't have it by what you do in spiritual practices like meditation and prayer. Know that what you have is you have received something from God because of the fullness of Jesus that he's the one who can bring fullness and share that with you. And he invites you into his own. This is how salvation works. That it's not something achieved by you, it's something given to you, passively received, brought into, intersecting your life. This is the way of salvation that comes to us in God who dwelled with us. And so in the word made flesh, the one who dwelt among us, the one whose glory that we behold, we discern his purpose, that he desires to dwell with us. We see his glory in his powers of new creation, and we see the beauty of his character in a willingness to suffer. And then we see his salvation, what he works on our behalf. And during this Advent season, as we approach Christmas, God's invitation is to come and see, to journey deeper, to go further, to press into the great mysteries of God becoming a man in order to save and redeem and reconcile, to bring forth everything that he always intended for the creation. And so come and see. Let's pray.